Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. Yeah, that's me. Welcome to the Tuesday edition. So, this upcoming season of Suits Atlanta is shaping up to be spicy. <laughs> uh, I've been sort of tardy to the party when it comes to the uh, USA Network's drama series Suits, which I think went nine seasons. I'm into season seven. And to be honest, I'm invested at this point because I really just want to see how the writers wrote Meghan Markle out because she's only engaged to one of the two principal stars of the show, right? Is that going to work? And since it only went nine seasons, I'm in season seven, so I guess I'm just in it for the duration. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm a little fixated on legal drama, but uh, this is the kind of legal drama that you would think comes from a scripted TV show like Suits, this season on Suits Atlanta. Let's go to WANF Atlanta News first. Explosive allegations tonight from one of former President Donald Trump's co-defendants right here in Georgia. He has some pretty bold claims about Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Mm -hmm. Atlanta News First anchor Tory Cooper has been digging through that court filing. So, Tory, what are they actually claiming here? Well, tonight, former Trump campaign staffer Michael Roman and his attorney Ashley Merchant are claiming District Attorney Fonnie Willis had an inappropriate and romantic relationship with the top prosecutor in the case, Nathan Wade. In this new court filing obtained by Atlanta News First, Michael Roman and his attorneys are accusing the Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis and special prosecutor Nathan Wade of having an inappropriate and romantic relationship and that the two benefited from it. Now, in all my law experience, which consists of now six plus seasons of suits, that sounds like a fishing expedition, but let's listen on. The suit claims Willis and Wade took lavish vacations together and that he used part of his salary from the DA's office to travel with Willis. Okay, two things. One, I have been texting everybody I know that knows anything about Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade to find out, are these two actually doing things? And two... If they are, why can't he spend his money however he wishes? Roman's attorney claims they discovered that the two went on trips together, quote, outside of court filings. Here's the problem in the court of public opinion. That's hard to disprove. But the burden of proof in the judicial proceeding falls on Roman and his attorney. So do they have proof? So far in this filing or afterwards, they've provided none. The suit goes on to claim their relationship began before Wade was appointed to the case. And if that is true, it's a bad decision on Fonnie Willis's part, who has to know. She's a smart woman. You have to be absolutely perfect on this case. They claim Willis also failed to get county approval to appoint Wade as special prosecutor in the case. That's something she can easily disprove if they're wrong. Roman's attorneys are now asking the court to disqualify both of them from prosecuting the RICO case. If these allegations are true, there's some merit to that. And to drop all of Roman's charges. Anthony Michael Christ, who is a Georgia State University College of Law professor and legal analyst, telling CNN that the filing, quote, probably means relatively little in terms of derailing the prosecution against Trump and his allies, except to undermine its legitimacy. He goes on to say, 
It's an internal conflict of interest and certainly an optics problem. If true, the biggest issue here is it will undermine the legitimacy of the prosecution just as an optical matter. He did, by the way, go on to remind CNN that there's no hard evidence to back up the claims and said, I fail to see how any of this violates Mr. Roman's constitutional rights. Roman's attorneys wouldn't comment any further tonight, and Fonnie Willis's office told us they will be responding to Roman's suit through proper court filings. And honestly, what can she say to refute this other than these are baseless allegations? The problem is the allegations are already out there and they're salacious. Again, on the next episode of Suits Atlanta. I mean, this is very primetime courtroom drama TV stuff, right? The allegations are out there. And even if they can be proven to be false, and, and again, what is she going to do? Provide evidence that they didn't go on a trip together? How do you provide evidence of that? Or that they weren't dating? Or, or How do you provide evidence of something if it hasn't happened or doesn't exist, if it hasn't happened or doesn't exist? The allegations went public. They're out there. They're already painted on the wall. You may paint over them, but we already saw the graffiti on the wall the first time. We got the message. How many folks does that just stick with? Well, you have to remember, you're talking about conservatives and Republican politicians who like to levy investigations and inquiries and draft bills based on hearsay lacking in evidence. There's an impeachment inquiry in Washington going on right now with no evidence provided. But the allegations are already out there. And the Fox News audience and the talk radio audience that laps that stuff up has lapped that stuff up. And this is no different until proven otherwise. For example, Greg Bluestein, Tamar Hollerman with the AJC reporting, many of our Republican critics are quick to weigh in. In Washington, the GOP-led House Judiciary Committee, which launched an investigation of the DA's work in August, posted repeatedly on Twitter X that Willis couldn't be trusted. On his social media platform, Truth Social, Trump echoed several of the allegations from Roman's filing and stated he was so proud to be showing the people of America how corrupt, crooked Joe Biden and our justice system is. They go on to write, at the state capitol, where lawmakers on Tuesday were converging for their second day of the legislative session, Republicans used the allegations to underscore their pitch for bolstering the state law governing the state's newly formed Prosecuting Attorneys Qualifications Commission. State Representative Houston Gaines pouncing on this to say, right now, district attorneys have no accountability. We're on the verge of changing that and holding prosecutors accountable. This only fuels the need to get the Oversight Commission up and running right away. Adding, Fonnie Willis should be investigated immediately. And if these allegations are true, he didn't emphasize if, I did. If these allegations are true, she should resign or be removed from office. Now, if you're a fan of the TV show Suits, Here's where I go all Jessica Pearson on Harvey and say, how could you let that happen to Fonnie Willis? How could you let that, if any of this is true? And I'm not saying it is, but say it is true. What if it were Fonnie? How could you do that? That would be my reaction. And I'm a little perplexed, if I'm being honest, at the unwritten but underlying note of dismay from local and state Democrats who local reporters are saying are anxiously, nervously anxious about this. Bluestein and Hollerman, again, back in the AJC writing, Democrats, meanwhile, remained quiet about Roman's allegations against Willis. But privately, they write, 
many express concerns about the optics, even with its legal implications still uncertain. Also unclear is whether the allegations are enough to draw a political challenge for Willis, a Democrat who is up for re-election in November. No challengers of either party have so far emerged. The qualifying deadline for candidates who want to appear on the ballot is March 8th. Final point in this article. Willis herself is proof that Fulton County voters are willing to back a well-known incumbent. Four years ago, she unseated her former boss, Paul Howard, with more than 70% of the vote in the Democratic primary runoff. Howard had held the office for more than two decades. And if you don't remember, he had ethics violations lobbied against him. He had to pay a fine. Uh, He also was alleged to have sexually harassed uh, an, uh, an employee and was actually just acquitted of that, found not guilty, I should say, last month. But again, I want to circle back to this filing yesterday and my immense experience in watching so far six plus seasons of Suits <laughs> and, and say, is this just theater? Is this a bluff? And if they filed, what are we wait? Are we going to have to wait to now see this in a courtroom and be given proof? Is there a uh, discovery? See, I've learned a few things watching Suits for six plus seasons. But at the very least, here's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with both legal and media manipulation if there is no proof. This casts doubts. Even among those on the left, those who support the investigation and support the prosecution's efforts to make those be held accountable, who tried to overturn the 2020 election. This very well may be much ado about nothing, but you can't hop on social media if you follow politics or Georgia politics without seeing this story. It was on the national news. It was on local news. You know what wasn't on local news or national news? Roger Stone talking to an off-duty but still employed NYPD cop who he hired as extra security about assassinating two congressmen. Did you see Lester Holt talk about that on NBC News last night? No. Honestly, here's the crazy thing. Even I'm somewhat guilty of this. I'm giving you my first segment of the show today devoted to this very allegation because there doesn't seem to be yet a play in the anti-Trump playbook to counter this kind of manipulation. Well, you know, people are saying, and I'm hearing, and, and, and that's what he does. He does that from the dais every time he goes to a rally, and there's no way to counter something that isn't based in fact to begin with. And again, I don't know that this allegation isn't factual, but they filed without proof, and until we see discovery, as I learned from six plus seasons of Suits, it's, it's just hard in the court of public opinion to counter this. Now, back to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Bill Rankin and Tamar Hollerman reporting separately that the document filed offers no concrete proof of the romantic ties between Willis and Wade, but say, quote, sources close to both the special prosecutor, Nathan Wade, and the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, have confirmed they had an ongoing personal relationship. What the hell does that mean? I have personal relationships with my neighbors, but I'm not doinking them. Roman's lawyer, Ashley Merchant, back to the article, said she reviewed the case file in Wade's ongoing divorce proceedings at the Superior Court Clerk's Office and made copies of certain documents. But the case file was later improperly sealed because no court hearing was held as required by law, according to that motion. 
Because the case remains under seal, Merchant said she is not sharing the information she obtained from the divorce file until the seal is lifted. She also said she is asking a judge to unseal the case file. The article continues, It is unclear if the explosive issues raised in the filing undermine the validity of the indictment against Trump and the remaining 14 co-defendants or simply muddy the waters by questioning Willis' professional ethics. One ethics expert said that the allegations, if true, raised serious questions. That expert, Stephen Gillers, a professor emeritus at New York University Law School. He's written extensively about legal and judicial ethics and said a closer look at Fani's decision-making is needed before it can be determined whether the indictment should be dismissed. He said, if the allegations are true, quote, Willis was conflicted in the investigation and prosecution of this case and wasn't able to bring the sort of, quote, independent professional judgment her position requires. If the allegations are true, Gillers continues, that does not mean that her decisions were in fact improperly motivated. If the allegations are true, it does mean that the public and the state as her client could not have the confidence in the independent judgment that her position requires her to exercise. Again, if any of this is even true. And this delicious little nugget. Anna Bauer, who is a courts correspondent with Lawfare, tweets, Per the Wall Street Journal, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has been subpoenaed to testify in the divorce proceedings of Nathan Way, the special prosecutor leading the Trump election interference case in Georgia. Which tells me the source of all this is Nathan Wade's soon-to-be ex-wife. On the next episode of Suits Atlanta. But Trump doesn't have such a good day in court. We'll get to that next when The Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show. I have said all along that Trump claiming immunity because just about anything he does while president of the United States, even after losing a re-election bid, means he is immune from prosecution. Uh, because Republicans, it also means that the current president of the United States can do whatever the f*** he wants and not worry about the repercussions after he's out of office, right? Hell, by this logic, he should just go ahead and say, all right, you know what? I- I'm guilty of whatever it is that you guys have no evidence that I've done in this, this House inquiry here, but I'm going to go ahead and pardon myself. Uh, let's go to NBC News. President Donald Trump is remaining defiant after appearing in a federal appeals court today in Washington, D.C. And during the hearing, the judges seemed skeptical of Mr. Trump's claim that he's immune from charges that are related to his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election. The former president reacting after leaving the courtroom. Mm. I think it's very unfair when a opponent, a political opponent, is prosecuted by the DOJ, by Biden's DOJ. It's the opening of a Pandora's box, and that's a very that's a very sad thing that's happened with this whole situation. Uh, when they talk about uh, threat to democracy, that's your real threat to democracy. And I feel that as a president, you have to have immunity. But immunity from anything, from everything. Remember, as I ended yesterday's show, I pointed out that one of his closest allies, Roger Stone, was talking with an off-duty but still employed by the New York Police Department cop who was working personal security for him on the side about assassinating two congressmen, or at least one of the two congressmen, that he named Jerry Nadler or Eric Swalwell. You take your pick. In the follow-up to that NBC News clip, a little Q&A with a legal expert to kind of hash this out. 
NBC News Justice and Intelligence Correspondent Ken Delanian is tracking this for us. Ken, when it comes to the question of immunity, just set the scene for us. Walk us through the arguments that now both sides are making. Well, Morgan, President Trump is making a rather profound and dramatic argument, which is essentially, as boiled down by one of the judges on the three-judge panel, a president can order Navy SEAL Team 6 to assassinate his political opponent mm. uh, and not be prosecuted for that unless he is first impeached. That essentially was the argument made by Donald Trump's lawyer today. And as you said, it was greeted with a lot of skepticism, both by the two Democratic appointees and the judge appointed by George H.W. Bush. Um, it is not... Uh, the sort of uh, it's not the normal legal thinking in this country ever since Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon after Watergate under the presumption that Richard Nixon could be prosecuted after he left office for the Watergate crimes. It's been the perception and the thought process that there are some things the former president could be prosecuted for. Now, the judges and even uh, special counsel Jack Smith's lawyers agree that there might be some other things that are um, uh, valid points of presidential immunity. For example, uh, wartime acts. A president right. orders a drone strike that's controversial, right. kills civilians. You wouldn't want to have a local prosecutor bringing murder charges against the president in that instance. But in the instance of former President Trump or then President Trump pressuring local officials trying to overturn an election, uh, there's some dispute as to whether that those are even presidential acts of uh, Jack Smith's office arguing they are certainly not immune from prosecution. I want to read a couple of tweets that make some profound points here. Uh, Eric Columbus uh, tweeting, Trump's team argued in 2021 that the Senate couldn't hold an impeachment trial because he was no longer president. So his position is that if a president murders his rivals late enough in his term, or if his role isn't discovered until after he leaves, he's untouchable. <laughs> Eric Columbus following up by tweeting, Trump's position is that Biden can kill him if 34 senators approve. Remember, it takes 67 senators to convict in an impeachment trial, and 34 from 100 is 66 and not 67. Two points to make here. Uh, number one, innocent people don't go to these great and laughably comical and painstaking means to run the clock out. The other point is that's exactly what Trump and his legal team are trying to do. They're trying to run the clock out. They want this to get to a point where it's in the primary season, people are voting, and he becomes the presumptive nominee as soon as possible, which only emboldens the party that he becomes the nominee of to defend him and to try and curtail any legal proceedings until let the American people decide. Mitch McConnell might say, I doubt he would, but some might in the GOP, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Liz Stefanik, Jim Jordan, just to name a few, to let the American people decide what happens and then say the American people decide or enough in the right states, enabling the Electoral College to elect him so that he can then decide, none of this matters, I'm going to pardon myself. <laughs> I don't sing on this show very often, but sometimes I just want to belt out so that I can ask you, aren't you proud to be an American? Where at least you know he can be free. And just to show you how easy it is for conservatives to be manipulated by their media choices, former Trump Department of Justice spokesperson Carrie Kupik, who is now the Fox News legal editor, came away with the actual inverse of what happened today 
when the three-judge panel queried Trump's attorneys about his immunity, telling Harrison Faulkner... I I have to tell you, Harris, I thought the three-judge panel was somewhat skeptical of the Department of Justice's arguments. You could tell they were concerned about precedent that they would set if they said a president is not immune for uh, from prosecution for acts conducted during mm-hmm. office. They also obviously are wrestling with what ha- what does in fact though happen if a president say commits some kind of crime while in office, well, ha- what happens after that? Yeah. But I certainly walked away from there not thinking that they had landed anywhere in particular, but they, they, that they themselves are wrestling with it as well. Well, look, Harry, everybody's reputation's on the line here. Oh, uh, yeah. Everybody's. So they I'm know s- they have to get this right. Mm-hmm. Whichever way it comes. Uh, that's right. Yeah, they're, they're on that's the line, right. too. Great and- to see you. Thank you very much. I mean, was Kerry Kupek listening to this exchange? Could a president who ordered SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. And so, so your answer is, is, no. is my answer is qualified. Yes, there is a political process that would have to occur under our, the structure of our Constitution, which would require impeachment and conviction by the Senate. In these exceptional cases, as the OLC memo itself points out from the Department of Justice, you'd expect a speedy impeachment and conviction. And what we learned after January 6th is with the current Republican Party, that's an impossibility. We're on show after this on the American One Radio app, AmericanRadio.com, wherever you podcast. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. Uh, all right, let's start with uh, this, which I think is sort of breaking news. Uh, at least this broke about an hour and a half ago. Greg Bluestein at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporting that Cobb County Commissioner Jerrica Richardson said today that she's going to stay in the race for the newly drawn, solidly Democratic West Atlanta Congressional District, even though it puts her on a collision course with Lucy McBath. Earlier, we had reported that that was not going to happen, and I want to say I read that as well in the AJC, although frequent guest of the show and senior strategist for the Richardson for Congress campaign, Andrew Heaton, was a little a little more noncommittal about what, uh, what she was going to do. Well, I don't know if he actually talked about that on there, to be honest with you. I know we talked about it in text message, but again, I, I didn't withhold anything. We just, I don't think I ever got concrete information. Uh, the article continues, Richardson's decision sets up a potential primary battle against Representative Lucy McBath, who said last month she will switch to the 6th Congressional District after Republican legislators drew her out of her suburban seat for the second time in two years. It was a surprising move by Richardson, Greg Bluestein writes, a Democrat who told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that she wouldn't run against a Democratic incumbent. Easy for me to say. I talk for a living. But it may have been spurred by a court ruling this week that upheld a separate GOP-drawn Cobb map that ousted her from her commission seat. Hmm. Richardson saying, I certainly know what it means to be drawn out of an office and fight to get it back. I'll read from you the statement from Jerrica's campaign in response to last week's decision by Judge Jones and his affirmation of the congressional maps passed by the Georgia General Assembly in December, 6th District congressional candidate and Cobb County Commissioner Jerrica Richardson has given the following statement. When I decided to run, it wasn't because Congress came with a nice fancy title or that I felt entitled to this seat. I decided to run because there are real issues that need to be addressed. Too many voters feel they are being ignored. I decided to run to remind people just how powerful they really are to restore hope and help spread information that empowers empowered members of my community. I decided to run to restore vision to communities that have run clean out of investments. 
I decided to run to bring the attention back to the 6th District of Georgia, which is a map. Uh, when the maps were affirmed, calls and text messages flooded in to ask what I was going to do. While attending a funeral for a loved one, it presented me with an opportunity to reflect a little more. I also reached out to members of my community to hear how they felt about the map decision and what they hoped for. Much has transpired since Judge Jones' ruling, but what has not changed is that we do not know yet how this race will evolve. When asked previously about whether I would stay in this race if the maps forced any current members of the Democratic Congressional Caucus to join this race in the 6th, I answered honestly that my intention in entering this race was never about challenging a sitting Democrat. I entered this race solely focused on delivering for the constituents of the 6th, many of whom are my current commission constituents. In this campaign, I am committed to what I am always committed to, which is the people of the district. So my answer is simple, Jerrica writes, because this race was never about me, my turn or my career. It's not even about the district lines, and I certainly know what it means to be drawn out of an office and fight to get it back. This race is about the people of the 6th District. I've decided that I'm going to keep surfacing the issues that voters care about, because our voters deserve to know we are listening and creating ways to close the gap. Back to Greg Bluestein writing on this. She's picking a tough fight against Lucy McBath, who became one of the nation's most prominent gun control advocates after her teenage son was murdered in Florida. Backed by President Joe Biden, McBath has won three consecutive terms representing three different metro Atlanta territories. Richardson first entered the race for the Congressional District in September, back when it stretched from North Fulton County to rural North Georgia. We had her on the show when she announced, actually. Actually, the day after, I believe. She had little hope of defeating Republican Representative Rich McCormick in such solidly conservative territory, but her campaign was widely seen as a placeholder in case a federal judge ordered state lawmakers to draw a new Democratic-leaning district to give black voters more power. U.S. District Judge Steve Jones soon ordered legislatures to do just that by creating a majority black district in West Metro Atlanta. The Republican-controlled legislature carved out a new 6th district across parts of Cobb, Douglas, Fayette, and Fulton counties, but they also gutted McBath's Gwinnett County-based seat. <sighs> well, those of us on the left who live in the state of Georgia and in Metro Atlanta, we have ourselves a bit of a dilemma. Now, honestly, I thought when the maps were redrawn, I thought to myself, you know what? Lucy McBath has established herself and is a viable candidate in a swing district. Now, whether or not the district she currently resides in as it's been redrawn is a viable, winnable district or not, I can't say. Either way, state Democrats are faced with the likelihood of seeing two viable candidates within their party having to run against each other instead of competitive separate districts because Republicans don't like competitive districts to be drawn and because the Voting Rights Act is narrowly interpreted to only uh, be intact to protect black voters and not minority voters. That's how uh, Obama appointed federal judge Steve Jones saw that. So here we are faced with Lucy McBath going into a district she doesn't live in I mean, it's, I'm just being fair here, and there's no law that says you have to live in the district that you run for in the state of Georgia. 
oddly enough. Uh, well, we knew this because I don't, I don't think Marcus Flowers lived in Georgia 14 when he was running against Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think he lived just south of it. Um, anyway, eh, it's a little awkward, and, and, and it could be interesting to see if the Richardson campaign decides to take the she doesn't live in our district, y'all, tact or not. Um, I, I think a lot of this actually stems from what happened uh, yesterday after I got done uh, taping and in the midst of the show airing, uh, this headline from East Cobb News, uh, Judge Rules Cobb's home rule claim is unconstitutional. You'll remember that Jerrica Richardson's commission district was basically erased from a state legislatively drawn Cobb County Commission map. The Republican-led Georgia legislature drawing a more favorable map for Republicans, despite the fact that Cobb County is a blue county and has been at the polls since 2016 at minimum. Wendy Parker writing, a Cobb Superior Court judge has ruled that Cobb County government's invocation of home rule over Board of Commissioners reapportionment violates the Georgia Constitution. Judge Ann Harris issued a motion for summary judgment on Monday on behalf of plaintiffs David and Catherine Flom, North Cobb residents who, along with Commissioner Kelly Gambrell, a Republican, filed suit in 2023. They were contesting a 3-2 vote by the commission in October 2022 along party lines. The board has three Democrats, two Republicans, to challenge electoral maps drawn by the Georgia legislature earlier in 2022. Those maps, approved as HB 1154, drew Democratic District 2 Commissioner Jerrica Richardson out of her East Cobb home and placed most of East Cobb in District 3. Wendy Parker goes on to write, The Georgia Constitution stipulates that redistricting of county commission and school board maps is a function of the legislature. Honestly, that's something that needs to be addressed. I don't expect the GOP-led... You know, this is the crazy thing... And, and maybe it's just the sheer arrogance of the party that's in control that they just don't feel like this is something that needs to be dealt with because they're in control. But even when the day comes that their side is not in control, they'll want this addressed. Why is the state legislature, seriously, this needs to be a constitutional amendment. Why is the state legislature involved in drawing county commission maps? Why is this even being done in a partisan manner anymore? It's 2024 for crying out loud. Anyway, uh, back to Wendy Parker's article. The Republican-led legislature bypassed maps drawn by the Democratic-led Cobb delegation that would have kept District 2 lines largely unchanged. The county's legal challenge focused on a number of home rule exemptions passed in 1965 legislation designed to give local governments more control. What a concept. What a concept. They love local control when they're talking about local, a.k.a. state, that they control versus the federal overreach. But when it comes to actual local control, well, we all know you can't get more local than yourself, right, ladies? And you don't control yourself. Uh, Anyway, in a ruling, uh, Judge Harris said that law the Municipal Home Rule Act and a constitutional amendment passed by Georgia voters the next year does not allow counties to invoke home rule to affect elective county office, including procedures for electing and appointing a county government authority. Let's see further down the article. Through a county spokesman, uh, Cobb County Attorney Bill Rowling said Monday, 
His office will be appealing Monday's ruling. The quote, we respect the ruling by Judge Harris issued this morning. Uh, The county has already filed its motion of appeal and looks forward to making our case during the process ahead. The group for which it stands, a nonprofit advocacy group created by Jerrica Richardson, issued a statement Monday afternoon denouncing the ruling. This ruling cast a spotlight on the District 2 seat, triggering the possibility of an immediate vacancy due to the reinstatement of the state's HB 1154 map. That's from the organization's executive director, Mindy Seeger. The unprecedented midterm vacancy arising from redistricting history in Georgia raises legitimate questions about the potential violation of OCGA 1311, a critical statute addressing the alteration of terms of office. That's just a fancy way of saying that's some crazy that you can just draw somebody out of an office in the middle of their term because the term straddles a redistricting process. It's the damnedest thing, y'all. Time after time after time after time, we see conservative Republicans loathe your right to vote and your right to vote having actual power. They do. They don't believe in little d democracy. They don't. They shirk it any chance. They're shirking it here in Cobb County. They're shirking it at the state legislative level, at the congressional level here for the state of Georgia, and throughout most of the United States in states that they have gubernatorial and or gubernatorial and legislative control in. They do not believe in democracy when it comes to electing our chief executive, the president, obviously. And they don't see any fallacy whatsoever in an electoral college that is poisoned largely from a House of Representatives that is stuck at an arcane number 435 for some reason and has been for nearly 100 years, despite the fact that the population of the country has nearly tripled. For the life of me, I don't understand why Democrats don't make more noise about this. Why am I the one, one, I'm sure there are a few others, but why am I the one saying Republicans hate democracy? You, as a voter, they don't like your vote counting. They choose to draw lines and stick to outdated, outmoded ways of electing our president to maintain power for the minority versus the majority. Why am I one of the few voices saying this? Why is this not a rallying cry for the Democratic Party? I ask this because here's the thing. This is the sort of stuff that just gets people disinterested, discouraged. It does. There's nothing we can do about it. They're just going to redraw the map. There's nothing to do about it. The Electoral College is going to do what it's going to do. Why should I even vote? That's exactly what they want voters to think. Democrats need to start making more noise and saying, no, no. We need, we need to empower democracy instead of dilute democracy. If I'm a Democratic candidate, I'm saying they wish to dilute democracy. We want to empower it. But in order for us to empower it, we need you to take full advantage of it before it goes away. Hell, if Democrats are afraid of workshopping this at the state or federal level, let's at least test Tubit in Cobb County, where they are literally subverting the will of the majority in that county.
Cobb County Democrats, are you listening to me? Are you hearing me? Are you going to now take this case to the Cobb County voter and say, listen, this is a majority blue county. We voted for Stacey Abrams twice. We voted for Hillary Clinton. We voted for Joe Biden. We should not be a 60% government-led Republican county then, right? It doesn't make sense. The math doesn't math, which means you need to show up and vote. We need to see voter turnout in 2024 to insist that our government reflect our values. And listen, Cobb Democrat, state Democrat, federal Democrat, if you don't start making the case that people have to turn out in record numbers and exercise their right to vote to stem this, then the apathy is only going to get worse. There's a case to be made, and I'm not seeing anybody making it steadfastly enough. What is it they say about silence equals complicity? This is complicity. If you are not making the case as a party, as a candidate, that your right to vote, American voter, is being stifled at every turn, then your silence as a candidate, as a party, Democrats, is complicity. Sometimes a browbeaten boxer gets tired of losing and gets off the mat and starts f-ing swinging. More on show after this. The American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Okay, final segment of the Ron Show. It's kind of a long one. I normally only go like seven and a half minutes. This is going to be like 14 and a half minutes here. Um, so I missed this over the holidays, and I really want to give some time to this because I just, first of all, I'm a big fan of John Fogel saying. Uh, also, this clip from the 11th hour with Stephanie Rule, which I believe was like one of those year-end things, things we want to leave behind in the year 2023. She went around the table, and John Fuglesang just lit the table up. Uh, I would love to leave behind right-wing fundamentalists and Christian nationalists who use Jesus, whose birth we celebrate, as a prop while legislating and fighting against his actual teachings. Mm. There's a lot of right-wing brothers and sisters in this country who identify as Christian, and they care about the manger and the crucifix, and they ignore the 30 years of teaching. 33. Well, actually, three years of teaching he did in between. Uh, Jesus is um, not an ally of the Republican Party. There is no overlap between Jesus and the policies of Donald Trump. In South Carolina, they tried to have a bill this year calling for the death penalty for abortion. We're so pro-life, we'll kill you. That's where we're at right now. <laughs> That's Stephen Wright. I would kill for a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. Seeing the Pope this week <laughs> enraged these right-wing Christians so much because he acted like Jesus in blessing gay unions. Yep. Jesus is not anti-immigrant. He commands people to welcome the stranger. He never mentions abortion. The Bible never condemns abortion. We've had two generations of Christians in this country who have been groomed to believe criminalizing abortion is Something to do with what Jesus talked about. Christ was a peaceful, radical, nonviolent revolutionary, never mentioned gay people. He commanded you to pay your taxes, to welcome the stranger. Individuals and nations must care for the poor and sick in Matthew 25. He who lives by the sword must die by the sword, Luke 22. There's a reason why these right-wingers never try to put the Sermon on the Mount on walls in classrooms. Thank it's God because somebody of this. read the Bible. Wow, yeah. Jesus, the child of an ex-nun. Jesus' birthday, you're delivering. Listen, I'm the child of an ex-nun and an ex 
Vance Franciscan. Oh, wow. And if you are, if you want to criminalize abortion and put people in jail because you're so Christian when Jesus never mentioned abortion, but you support the death penalty, which Christ actually opposed, the rest of us... a lot of men wrote the books, you well, know? But if you support those things, then the rest of us aren't obliged to take your claims of Christian piety seriously anymore. And the media is to blame because the media loves a bad guy and has made the Falwells and the Robertsons pass for what Christianity is for a generation. It's time to take the Bible back from the hypocrites and thugs. Or if you think it's the Falwells, mm. I invite you to watch the recent documentary about Jerry Jr. Oh, and yes. his wife and the Ooh. pool boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Stephanie Rule, I love that. Thank you for going in on that. Uh, speaking of documentaries, we have uh, a guest tomorrow, two guests actually tomorrow on the show. Uh, Malika Easters from the Georgia Windless will join us. And she's going to introduce us to Gillian Rabin, who put together, I believe it's like an 18-minute uh, dystopian movie that talks about what it's like or what it can look like, and actually this isn't all that dystopian, to live in a post-row Texas. Uh, so the uh, Georgia Wind List uh, hosted a screening of this uh, movie and then held a panel discussion afterwards. And uh, I will share that when they share it. In fact, they're working on that right now as we speak to uh, add that to their website. I'll put that in the show notes tomorrow as well. Looking forward to uh, Jillian Rabin joining us along with Melita Easter's to discuss that, maybe even just try and give you as much of the audio of that as, or some of the audio anyway, so that you can uh, get an idea what this is about as possible. Uh, one more uh, court, like this has been a very court heavy show today, right? Uh, one more court case that I think deserves some attention. Uh, Mark Neese at the Atlanta Journal Constitution. And oh, by the way, we also have a piece from the Washington Post, uh, Emma Brown and Amy Gardner uh, reporting on the Coffee County breach and how this has to do with a voting machine trial that just got started. Uh, Susan uh, uh, Greenlaw, by the way, uh, in town tomorrow. I think I'm going to hang out with her and we're going to talk a little bit. She's uh, been on the show a few times today. Uh, Mark Neese reporting, a trial questioning the security of Georgia's touchscreen voting systems started today with allegations that a breach in Coffee County showed real-world vulnerabilities in a defense that actual risks are speculative at best. The case, Mark writes, Playing out in a packed federal court in Atlanta will test whether the Dominion voting system used in Georgia creates an unconstitutional danger that voting machines could be hacked or programmed incorrectly. With a touchscreen and printer displayed at the front of the courtroom, attorneys for the plaintiffs asked the judge to settle disputes about voting machines before this year's presidential election. And by the way, uh, one of the plaintiffs is the Coalition for Good Governance. We've had representation on from that show as well. This is a left-leaning, uh, uh, you know, a sort of a, a trial here. The the, the plaintiffs uh, are, are a little more left-leaning and looking for Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to abandon these uh, touchscreen voting machines because of irregularities, not so much in the results of the 2020 election, and let me point that out, but more for the fact that because of the Coffee County breach, uh, now there's some concern that there could be some meddling in results after the fact, to which I will pivot now to the Washington Post piece, uh, where again, Emma Brown and Amy Gardner write, Mike Lindell, yep, that guy, the flamboyant pillow magnet, has spent millions promoting the falsehood that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump, a claim that has been roundly rejected by cybersecurity experts, government officials, and numerous courts. But late last year, Lindell crowed that a federal judge had vindicated him at last. He said, I get to take off my tinfoil hat on a podcast hosted by former Trump White House advisor Stephen Bannon. 
removing a baseball cap covered in aluminum foil that he had worn as a prop. You know, that's what the judge said. We're not a conspiracy theory guy anymore. Praise the Lord. Back to the article. The judge had said no such thing. She had not mentioned Lindell at all or the outlandish election fraud claims he and other Trump allies have advanced. They're trying to hijack this court case that's happening right now to bolster their claims of election irregularities back in 2020. And I'm going to go back to the article where this spells that out. The people, U.S. District Court Judge Amy Totenberg declared to be not conspiracy theorists or of any variety, are the largely left-leaning plaintiffs in a lawsuit that was filed in Georgia long before the 2020 election and that is slated to go to trial this week. They argue that voting machines there present security risks that state officials are constitutionally obligated to address, and they have the backing, Totenberg wrote, of, quote, some of the nation's leading cybersecurity experts and computer scientists. Anyway, we're keeping our eye on curling versus Raffensperger. How about the Trump and Lindell people trying to use that to their advantage? disgusting. That's it for The Ron Show. Lots of show notes at ronshowetl.com for you. Back here tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the American Radio app, AmericanRadio.com, and then wherever you podcast. Have a good one.